This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Pope Francis's Legacy of Confusion Since the establishment of the Church by our Lord, 266 men have served as Pope. Over those two millennia, many of them left their fingerprints on both the Church and history. For that reason, there is always a discussion about the legacy of any Pope. Most of these idle speculations are worthless. However, very few men have examined the actions of Pope Francis and their importance with a greater scholarly background than Luis Sergio Salomeo. This episode of Return to Order Moment will bring you Mr. Salomeo's insights into three aspects of Pope Francis's career. In the first essay of this podcast, Mr. Salomeo contrasts Pope Francis' insights with those of St. Thomas Aquinas about the nature of the Holy Eucharist. So, the Return to Order moment brings you, For Pope Francis, the Holy Eucharist is the bread of sinners. For St. Thomas Aquinas, it is the bread of angels. Corpus Christi is the grand and solemn liturgical feast in praise of the Blessed Sacrament. Inspired by St. Juliana of Montcornillon, 1193 to 1258. It originated in the Middle Ages. Pope Urban IV approved it with the bull Transitoris of September 8, 1264, and asked St. Thomas Aquinas to compose its liturgical office. However, we owe to St. Thomas's liturgical genius, he was also an inspired poet, the beautiful hymn Lauda Sion that is part of the New Feast's Mass. In its verses, we find the beautiful expression, Ecce Panis Angelorum, Behold the Bread of Angels, which came to be used frequently to designate Holy Communion. That is easy to understand, because one can only receive it in the state of grace, which renders men similar to angels. Pope Francis took advantage of the commemoration of the Feast of Corpus Christi on June 6th to change the meaning of the Sacrament of the Eucharist into one entirely contrary to the Church's perennial teaching. Thus, changing the poetic but theologically safe formulation of St. Thomas, he transforms the designation Bread of Angels into Bread of Sinners. As he had done on another occasion, At the Angelus on that feast day, Pope Francis presented Judas the traitor as an example of divine mercy. He said that at the Holy Supper, Jesus knew of Judas's betrayal and, quote, What does Jesus do? He reacts to the evil with a greater good. He responds to Judas's no with the yes of mercy. He does not punish the sinner, but rather gives his life for him, unquote. Pope Francis adds, When we receive the Eucharist, Jesus does the same with us. He knows us, he knows we are sinners, and he knows we make many mistakes. But he does not give up on joining his life to ours, unquote. Concluding his thought, he says that Jesus, quote, knows that we need it, because the Eucharist is not the reward of saints. No, it is the bread of sinners. That is why he exhorts us, do not be afraid, take and eat, unquote. 
The above words and the example of Judas when designating the Eucharist as bread of sinners makes one wonder if Pope Francis suggests that the proper effect of Holy Communion is to forgive mortal sins, not just venial ones. That would run contrary to the Council of Trent. Quote, Canon 5. If anyone says that the special fruit of the Most Holy Eucharist is the remission of sins, or that from it no other fruits are produced, let him be anathema. Unquote. Another error equally opposed to that counsel and the scriptures, and seemingly insinuated in Pope Francis's words, is that being in the state of grace is not required to receive Holy Communion. However, Quoting St. Paul, the Council of Trent says, quote, Assuredly, the more the holiness and divinity of this heavenly sacrament are understood by a Christian, the more diligently ought he to give heed that he approaches it not to receive it, but with great reverence and holiness, especially as we read in the Apostle these words full of terror, He that eat and drink unworthily, eat and drink judgment to himself. See 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29. Wherefore, he who would communicate ought to recall to mind the precept of the apostle, let a man prove himself, unquote. The moralists Antonio Lanza and Pietro Palazzini explain, quote, By divine right, all who are in mortal sin cannot licitly approach communion, unquote. These moral theologians summarize the effects of Eucharistic communion as follows, quote, The specific effects of Holy Communion are A. Uniting us with Jesus Christ and his mystical body, the Church, in a more intimate way. B. Increasing sanctifying grace in us. C. Nurturing and fortifying our spiritual life. D. Weakening concupiscence. E. Giving us a sign of eternal life. These effects will be all the more abundant, the better are the dispositions with which one receives it. Unquote. Holy Communion can indirectly erase a mortal sin when a person, unaware that he is in sin, receives communion piously. In those cases, quote, theologians incline to the opinion that in such exceptional cases, the Holy Spirit can restore the soul to the state of grace. Unquote. Given Pope Francis's new designation of the Holy Eucharist as the bread of sinners, one understands better why, in his apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia, he opened in a footnote the possibility for people living in adultery to receive Holy Communion. In that apostolic exhortation, he says that a person can be in an, quote, objective situation of sin, but still living in God's grace, can love and can also grow in the life of grace and charity while receiving the Church's help to this end, unquote. In a note, he says, In certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments, because the Holy Eucharist, quote, is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak, unquote. The bishops of the Buenos Aires pastoral region made it entirely clear what Amoris Laetitia said confusingly. They say that in certain cases when the first marriage cannot be the object of annulment, quote, 
Amoris Laetitia opens the possibility of access to the sacraments of reconciliation and the Eucharist, see notes 336 and 351. In turn, these dispose the person to continue maturing and growing with the power of grace, unquote. In his response to these bishops, Pope Francis praises their pronouncement and adds, quote, This writing is very good and makes fully explicit the meaning of chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia. There are no other interpretations, unquote. Pope Francis thus deems authentic the interpretation of the Argentine bishops, according to which married couples in adultery can receive sacramental absolution and communion without abandoning their sinful situation. This is perfectly consistent with seeing the Holy Eucharist as the bread of sinners. It is good to add that, according to the traditional doctrine sanctioned at the Council of Trent, A confession made without repentance and the firm purpose of abandoning sin is invalid and a profanation of the sacrament. On September 19, 2016, four cardinals of the Holy Church, Carlo Cafara, Joachim Meissner, both deceased, Raymond Burke, and Walter Brandmuller, addressed to Pope Francis a request for clarification in the form of dubia, or doubts, on the new doctrines contained in Amoris Laetitia, especially on the Holy Eucharist and the Sacrament of Penance. They wrote, quote, It is asked whether, following the affirmations of Amoris Laetitia, 300-305, it has now become possible to grant absolution in the Sacrament of Penance and thus to admit to Holy Communion a person who, while bound by a valid marital bond, lives together with a different person, more uxorio, without fulfilling the conditions provided for by Familiaris Consortio, 84, and subsequently reaffirmed by Reconciliatio et Penitentia, 34, and Sacramentum Caritatis, 29. Can the expression, in certain cases, found in note 351 of the exhortation Amoris Laetitia, be applied to divorced persons who are in a new union and who continue to live more uxorio, or as husband and wife? Unquote. To this day, almost five years later, Pope Francis has not responded to the dubia. His silence in this regard is now public and notorious throughout the Catholic world. The following year, on July 16, 2017, a group of Catholic theologians and intellectuals published a document titled Correctio Filiales de Haracibius Propagatis. They showed the same concern as the cardinals. They wrote forcefully, quote, Several passages of Amoris Laetitia, in conjunction with acts, words, and omissions of your holiness, serve to propagate seven heretical propositions, unquote. Is it not a blasphemy to call the Holy Eucharist bread of sinners? The sacraments bestow grace on those who receive them worthily. None of them can be given to an adult who is not in a condition to receive them. Even for penance or confession— currently called the Sacrament of Reconciliation, to produce its effects of restoring a sinner to the state of grace. He needs to seriously confess his sins with perfect or at least imperfect repentance and a firm resolve to abandon sin. According to Lanza and Palazzini, quote, 
Whoever consciously receives the sacrament without the proper dispositions commits a serious sin of sacrilege because it renders useless the rite that Christ instituted as an effective sign of grace. They conclude, The profanation of a very holy thing is a grave insult against the divine founder. Concretely, the state of grace is required to receive the sacraments of the living. If that is missing, sacrilege is committed. In the external form, it is quite evident that not only those who procure and those who perform an abortion are in a state of sin. The legislators or justices who turn pro-abortion measures into law are as well. They commit at least the sin of scandal by denying, in practice, a doctrine always taught by the Church and based on natural law. Pope Francis's singular teaching that the Holy Eucharist, the bread of angels, is the bread of sinners, has serious practical consequences. No one can deny that he is at least silent on this matter regarding the dubia. Furthermore, instead of supporting courageous bishops who take Catholic doctrine seriously and publicly state how allowing such politicians to receive Holy Communion is incompatible with church doctrine, Pope Francis consistently favors concessive prelates. Let us close with the verses of St. Thomas Aquinas recited in the sequence of the Mass of the Feast of Corpus Christi. Behold the bread of angels, for us pilgrims' food, and token of the promise by Christ spoken, children's meat to dogs denied, shown in Isaac's dedication, in the manna's preparation, in the paschal immolation, in old types presignified. Jesu, shepherd of the sheep, thou thy flock in safety keep, living bread thy life supply, strengthen us, or else we die. Fill us with celestial grace, thou who feeds us below, source of all we have or know, Grant that with thy saints above, sitting at the feast of love, we may see thee face to face. Amen. Alleluia. Another area in which Pope Francis's position spreads confusion is in his attitude about homosexual sin. Before we read Mr. Solomeo's essay, we insert this short statement from the American TFP about this delicate issue. Taking a principled, not a personal stand. As practicing Catholics, we are filled with compassion and pray for those who struggle against violent temptation to sin, be it toward homosexual sin or otherwise. We are conscious of the enormous difference between these individuals who struggle with their weakness and strive to overcome them and others who transform their sin into a reason for pride and try to impose their lifestyle on society as a whole, in flagrant opposition to traditional Christian morality and natural law. However, we pray for them, too. According to the expression attributed to St. Augustine, we hate the sin but love the sinner. And to love the sinner, as the same doctor of the church explains, is to wish for him the best we can possibly desire for ourselves, namely, quote, that he may love God with a perfect affection, unquote. See St. Augustine of the Morals of the Church, 
Number 49. As is obvious from this statement, church teaching about homosexual acts has always been abundantly clear. Pope Francis's position is confused at best. On one hand, he has made statements that confirm the church's historical teachings. On the other, he praises those who take contrary positions. Some observers have referred to the Pope's lack of a clear stand as weaponized ambiguity. Mr. Salomeo attempts to clarify the picture and give it an historic perspective in his essay, Is Pope Francis Enabling Homo Heresy Inside the Church? On October 31, 1517, Martin Luther, a friar without a vocation, nailed his libel of revolt at the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Saxony. Although everything had already been prepared for this revolt, that symbolic gesture triggered from the bosom of the Catholic Church the apostasy of much of Europe. By then, universities had been teaching subjectivist philosophies which, by denying reality, denied the truth. Part of the clergy had become worldly and adhered to the new doctrines. In turn, a covetous and decadent nobility was eyeing the church's assets. Charles V, a weak Catholic emperor, and Leo X, a Renaissance pope, both more concerned with politics and pleasures, allowed the revolt to spread. Five centuries later, the flames of revolt broke out. On February 22nd, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith answered in the negative a question, dubium, on the lyceity of blessing same-sex unions. Pope Francis had approved the answer. Individual statements from bishops, priest groups, and theologians immediately started to appear, preparing the ground for an open act of defiance against the faith. On May 10, 2021, Catholic priests and deacons, with the active or passive support of bishops, blessed same-sex pairs in some 100 churches in Germany, allegedly in some 80 cities. It was an act of open rebellion against the Holy See, which had condemned the practice. Like Luther's 1517 nailing of his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Saxony, more than just contradicting the note by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, the illicit mass church blessings for homosexual pairs was a gesture full of symbolism. It was a public denial of the church's perennial doctrine that any sexual act contrary to the ends of marriage, and specifically the act against nature, are very grave sins. Those who find themselves in an effective union that runs counter to the law of God and natural law are in an objective state of sin and revolt against the Creator. As the CDF document stated, it is not licit to bless this sinful way of life. For some time now, bad Catholic priests everywhere have been blessing same-sex pairs. Most bishops and the Vatican have remained entirely passive, seemingly not taking notice. The sudden intervention of the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith makes one wonder if the consultation, dubium, and its February negative answer were not a crafty move to provoke the Holy See to make an official pronouncement on the matter, a pronouncement that would unleash the long-prepared revolt. 
In the wake of the May 10th open revolt, there is no news that either Pope Francis or the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith have disciplined a single rebel. There is no news that they have spoken out against this public denial of Catholic morality and doctrine, let alone taken adequate measures to stop it. There is no news that any ordinary has disciplined a wayward priest in his diocese who is giving blessings to homosexual pairs. The silence and lack of disciplinary measures speak volumes. The question that arises is whether the Pope's inaction will lead to the consolidation of this heresy, as happened with Protestantism in Pope Leo X's time. In other words, homosexual sin becomes normalized and accepted in the Church today as a fait accompli. That is all the more to be feared, since, through words and attitudes, Pope Francis has shown active homosexuals not just tolerance, but support starting in 2013 with the most famous five words of his pontificate, quote, Who am I to judge? Unquote. After other endorsing gestures, he again defended the legalization of same-sex, quote-unquote, civil unions in a 2020 released interview, having already done so years earlier in Argentina when he was the Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires. The doctrinal defense of homosexual sin or same-sex quote-unquote marriage is a moral heresy that has been called homo-heresy. Polish theologian Father Darius Oko, professor of theology at the Pontifical Academy of Krakow and the John Paul II University, defines this new heresy as follows, quote, Homo-heresy is the refusal of the Catholic Church's magisterium on homosexuality. Homo-heresy proponents do not accept the fact that the homosexual tendency is a personality disorder. They question whether homosexual acts are against natural law and favor priesthood for homosexuals. Homo-heresy is an ecclesiastical version of homosexuality. Unquote. The Church's magisterium has always taught the truth from scripture and tradition that homosexual practice, like all consummated sin of lust, is a grave sin. However, it is not just any mortal sin, but one of four that, quote, cries out to heaven for vengeance, unquote. To deny this truth constitutes heresy, which is a, quote, obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism of some truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith, unquote. See Canon 751. In parallel to the Mass Church blessings of same-sex pairs on May 10th, a group of theologians published a manifesto attempting to justify their false doctrine. Among others, this document was signed by the notorious sister Janine Gramic, a co-founder of New Ways Ministry, who was condemned by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith in 1999 for denying that homosexual acts are intrinsically evil. Among the co-signatories is the scandalous Monsignor Christoph Karamsa. In 2015, he was dismissed from his CDF post after giving an interview with his homosexual partner for the Polish documentary film Article 18. 
This line of argument of homoheresy theologians is the same as that of modernism. Church dogmas must evolve and accompany the culture of the modern world. In these most difficult situations, we must follow St. Peter's apostolic teaching. He exhorts us to, quote, resist strong in faith because the God of all grace who has called us into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little, will himself perfect you and confirm you and establish you, unquote. See 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Let us not be discouraged by the apocalyptic ordeals in this church crisis. Our Lord watches over his church and will not allow her to be dominated by the infiltrated forces of evil. His very words in the gospel assure us of that. We draw courage from the fact that Our Lady herself promised at Fatima that her immaculate heart will triumph. We trust in her, the most pure virgin who alone crushes all heresies. She will trample underfoot this new heresy that glorifies the sin for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire. If Pope Francis' position on the Eucharist and homosexual sin are confusing, his ideas about the role of the church in the modern world are positively mystifying. In May 2020, the Pope's apparent position was that the one true Catholic and apostolic church was on the same level as the world's many false religions. Mr. Salomeo discussed this troubling episode in his essay, Pope Francis Submits to Religious Leaders Opposed to Our Lord Jesus Christ. The Higher Committee of Human Fraternity, an interreligious organization composed of Islamic, Jewish, and Catholic members, called for May 14th to be a journey, quote, for fasting, works of mercy, prayers and supplications for the good of all humanity, unquote. During the May 3rd Regina Celi in St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis stated, quote, Since prayer is a universal value, I have accepted the proposal of the Higher Committee for Human Fraternity, unquote. Based on this prayer is a universal value premise, Regardless of people's faith, intention, or way of praying, Pope Francis called on quote-unquote believers of all religions to heed the higher committee's call and to hold a day quote of prayer, of fasting, and works of charity to implore God to help humanity overcome the coronavirus pandemic, unquote. In closing, Pope Francis urged quote Remember May 14th, all believers together, believers of different traditions, to pray, fast, and perform works of charity, unquote. During Mass on May 14th, the Pope joined the initiative. He emphasized in his sermon that, quote, Thanks to the courage that this High Committee for Human Fraternity has shown, we have been invited to pray together according to one's own tradition and to hold a day of penance, fasting, and also charity, helping others, unquote. Pope Francis himself preempted the objection that can properly be made to this interreligious initiative, quote, Maybe some will say, this is religious relativism and cannot be, unquote. 
However, the Pope denied the objection's validity and doubled down, saying, quote, But how can we not pray to the Father of all? Everyone prays the way he knows and can as received from his own culture, unquote. Now, to affirm that each one prays as he knows, as he can, according to his own culture, is to accept the essence of religious relativism, which consists in rejecting all objective norms and absolute truth. In short, it is to fall into complete religious subjectivism. That is all the more so since the Pope addresses, quote, believers of all religions who pray, each according to his own tradition, unquote. Pope Francis seeks to justify this religious relativism, saying that God is the quote-unquote Father of all. Thus, differences of belief or in one's way of praying would not matter, implying that all religions are equally good and all forms of praying equally commendable, for they are addressed to the same Father. This statement is absurd, because God cannot be the father of all men in the same sense. He cannot be the father equally of the just and the sinner, the believer and the unbeliever, the followers of the true faith and those in heresy or the darkness of paganism. According to the Catechism of the Council of Trent, one must distinguish between God's paternity as, quote, creator and a ruler, unquote, and his paternity, quote, because he adopts Christians through grace, unquote. In the first case, God's paternity as creator, the analogy is with a person who establishes and maintains a family. In this sense, divine paternity can be applied to all men without distinction. In the second case, however, God's fatherhood by adoption through grace, he is properly speaking only of the father of the righteous, who accept faith in Jesus Christ and remain in his friendship. St. John aptly illustrates this truth in the introduction to his gospel. Quote, He, the Word incarnate, came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. But to those who did accept him, he gave power to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Unquote. See St. John, chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Further, St. Paul wrote to the Galatians, quote, For through faith you are all children of God in Christ Jesus, unquote. See Galatians, chapter 3, verse 26. In addition, he wrote to the Romans, quote, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If only we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Unquote. See Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 17. Therefore, adoptive divine filiation comes by faith and sanctifying grace. By destroying sanctifying grace in the soul, mortal sin causes the loss of adoptive divine filiation. Worse, the sinner not only ceases to be an adopted son of God, but also becomes a son of the devil, 
as one reads in the first epistle of St. John, quote, Whoever sins belongs to the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. In this way, the children of God and the children of the devil are made plain. No one who fails to act in righteousness belongs to God, nor anyone who does not love his brother, unquote. See 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 10. Our Lord illustrated this truth when responding to the Pharisees, who called themselves sons of Abraham but sought to kill him. Quote, You belong to your father the devil, and you willingly carry out your father's desires. Unquote. See St. John chapter 8, verse 44. Pope Francis confirms that, quote, Prayer is a universal value, unquote, implying that all prayers have the same value before God. Now it is evident that God cannot be equally pleased with the prayer of the just and that of the sinner, nor with that of the believer in the Blessed Trinity and that of those who not only do not believe in it, but fight to eliminate it or even that prayer made through the intercession of Mary Most Holy, the mediatrix of all graces, and that which rejects her mediation. St. Thomas teaches that, quote, prayer depends chiefly on faith, because it is through faith that a man comes to know of God's omnipotence and mercy, which are a source whence prayer impenetrates what it asks for, unquote. Prayer is a means of worshiping the Creator. As the same angelic doctor says, quote, Man shows reverence to God by means of prayer, insofar as he subjects himself to him, and by praying confesses that he needs him as the author of his goods, unquote. But how can a religion like Islam, which, as mentioned, refuses to accept the Blessed Trinity, or one like Buddhism, which rejects the notion of a personal God, pay due, quote-unquote, reverence to God. On the other hand, a sinner's prayer is only answered by God when, due to a remnant of good in his soul, he asks for something helpful to his salvation. On the contrary, when he asks to remain in sin, God rejects his prayer as an abomination. The same can be said of the prayer of the non-Christian. In those moments when, enlightened by grace, he prays to God looking for the truth, he will be answered. On the contrary, when he prays as a member of a false religion, according to its false principles, and willing the continued progress of its errors, God cannot heed the prayer without contradicting himself. Therefore, one cannot accept Pope Francis's simplistic notion of prayer. According to Pope Francis, God in his wisdom wants the existence of all religions. He embraced this position when signing the document on human fraternity for world peace and living together on February 4, 2019 in Abu Dhabi with the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Ahmad Al-Tayyab. His meeting and signing of the document with the imam gave rise to the Higher Committee of Human Fraternity, the source of the May 14th Ecumenical Prayer Initiative. The Abu Dhabi document states, quote, The pluralism and the diversity of religions 
color, sex, race, and language are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings. The concept does violence to human reason, which has as one of its foundations the principle of non-contradiction. Thus, God in his infinite wisdom could never will to be worshipped in his blessed trinity and, at the same time, to have this adoration considered idolatry and extirpated by Islam. Above all, the Abu Dhabi false concept contradicts divine revelation and the first commandment of the law of God, Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. See Exodus chapter 20 verse 3. Given the scandal and reactions triggered by the Abu Dhabi Declaration, more than a month later, Pope Francis said at a general audience that the existence of many religions is willed by God's quote-unquote permissive will. After asking, why does God allow so many religions? He replied that it is due, quote, to God's voluntas permissiva, permissive will, unquote. He added that God, quote, wanted to allow this reality. There are many religions, unquote. He failed to explain that although God allows evil to exist in the world, quote, partly that greater good may not be impeded and partly that greater evil may not ensue, unquote, he cannot be the cause even indirectly of any evil. Pope Francis's explanation is even more flawed as he adds that, quote, Some religions are born from culture, but they always look to heaven. They look to God, unquote. The phrase is very ambiguous because false religions cannot seek heaven and God correctly and efficiently. Otherwise, the necessary conclusion would be that all of them are good and salvific. If that were so, all of them would exist, not by God's permissive will, but by his positive will and desire. Yet this is the meaning of the disputed sentence in the Abu Dhabi document, which caused great scandal for presenting a God contradictory unto himself by wanting both good and evil, truth and error. The Abu Dhabi document that Pope Francis signed and this prayer initiative of the higher committee that he joined intend to build a fraternity among men that abstracts from faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who makes us children of God and therefore true brothers. Such an aspiration is just one more of the many naturalistic utopias of which history gives us many sorry examples. The ideas Pope Francis preaches on an undefined universal religion are not new. St. Pius X had already condemned them as part of the modernist heresy. When condemning the modernist-inspired movement Lesion, that saintly pope denounced a veritable conspiracy within the church to transform her into a naturalist religion devoid of all dogmas. After pointing out that this movement had been the object of much hope before it went astray, the pontiff writes, quote, This movement, 
now no more than a miserable affluent of the great movement of apostasy, being organized in every country for the establishment of a one-world church, which shall have neither dogmas nor hierarchy, neither discipline for the mind nor curb for the passions, and which, under the pretext of freedom and human dignity, would bring back to the world, if such a church could overcome, the reign of legalized cunning and force and the opposition of the weak and of all those who toil and suffer, unquote. In addition to the disturbing theological aspects of the various statements and initiatives discussed above, it was perplexing how the Pope, holding the highest religious authority on earth, one that was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ, had somehow submitted to another religious power that is funded and dominated by Muslims. An example of the bewilderment that it caused is a priest's letter to the Catholic journalist Aldo Maria Valle, who published it on his blog. The young priest writes, quote, I was immediately struck by the Pope's sort of obedience to an authority he seems to consider superior to him, whose name is a whole program, High Committee for Human Fraternity, unquote. Is Francis, through this gesture, implicitly abdicating from the papacy? While this is a delicate question, it cannot fail to occur to many, since he recently renounced the use of Vicar of Christ as a papal title. Let us pray that light will shine amid so much confusion. May Mary Most Holy, Seat of Wisdom, Guide us in this situation and help us to remain faithful to the one true church of our Lord Jesus Christ. This concludes Pope Francis's Legacy of Confusion. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. All of Mr. Salomeo's essays have extensive footnotes. Links to the printed articles are provided in the show notes so that interested listeners can find his sources of information. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.